Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to Reverb. My name is Alex Helberg, and I am thrilled to be joined on the mic today by my co-host and co-producers, Calvin Pollock. Hey, Alex, what's up? Hey, Calvin. And coming back to the mic in a triumphant return, Sophie Wadzak. Hey, Sophie. Hi there. Happy to be here. It's always Great. a triumphant return when Sophie comes back. Sophie is all, <laughs> Sophie is always just brings triumph with her to whatever appearance she makes on this show. It's uh, 100%. It's, yes, it's always a triumph. I've been working on that as part of my personal brand for a long time, so it means a lot for you to say that. Triumph. Kind of uh is it yeah. is it triumph the insult comic dog? Is that Here in the nation's capital, our leaders have gathered for the solemn process of voting along party lines. Many Republicans have complained about the length of these hearings and having to sit in the chamber for so many hours without having a spine to support them. Is that your style? Oh, there's a little, there's a touch of that in there touch too. Of that. I think. Not nice. quite That's as not in. not quite as many uh, bathroom jokes probably as uh, Triumph the Insult Comic Dog, or at least you know not historically, but you know. I Today guess young. <laughs> just wait. We'll see. Yeah. She's been developing her material. <laughs> got a lot to offer. Good. I'm I'm looking forward to that. So on today's show, I wanted to bring us back to the mic. We've taken a little bit of a break from the show just over the summer. We've had some transitions with some of us getting new jobs and settling into uh new living spaces, but we are back again at it, analyzing what has I think over the past few years gone a little bit underreported, this issue is starting to become a little bit more of an issue of national concern ever since a recent flashpoint in the media. And I am referring, of course, to the protest movement known as Stop Cop City. So I want to ask my co-hosts just to begin, what do you know up to this point? Or I guess, what have you heard about Stop Cop City? What do you know about this movement, what it is against, what it stands for? Yeah, so I mean, I don't, I don't know a whole lot about the ins and outs, but I do know that in Atlanta, they are planning to build a very, very large, what they're calling a police training facility, and what is casually known as Cop City, because basically yes. they're making a little pretend city where they can practice being police in. And yes. um, not only is that, you know, problematic in a lot of ways, because do we need do police need more places to practice being violent? Maybe not. But then also the another part of it that makes it so unappetizing to the people of Atlanta and to the people of the country, I would say, is that they have to raise this entire forest in order to build the cop city. And this is, you know, the biggest green space in Atlanta, I believe, and is a pretty important place to people. Uh, it's cherished by the community and is, you know, valued as bringing nature and beauty into the city of Atlanta. And so not only is this city itself, this cop city training facility, maybe not something people want. Also, we don't really feel like we need to lose a whole beautiful forest to get it, you know? And so people of Atlanta have understandably been resisting the progress of this for some time now. I'm actually not sure how long ago it was proposed, but that's, that's my take. Yeah. No, I'll get into a little more of the discrete history of it in just a moment here. But I, yeah, you're absolutely right, Sophie, in pointing out that there's kind of those two prongs of the movement that, you know, it is at one point against the expansion of uh, police resources and this sort of like exemplar of an over bloated police budget uh, that is being used to increase their sort of militarization in uh, an urban space like Atlanta, as well as the deforestation of a green space uh, south of the community. So Calvin, what do you know at this point about Stop Cop City? Yeah, I mean, I guess to to add to what Sophie said, I would just 
comment on kind of the more hegemonic pro-police expansion side of this, which is that the rationale for this has tied into a lot of recent debates in the media about the so-called defund the police movement and this kind of harsh reactionary right-wing turn against it, which has really focused during the pandemic on you know, purported dramatic increases in crime, this kind of right-wing paranoia around urban space, and, and kind of, I guess I would say, reclassifying poverty and housing insecurity as social contagions that need to be squelched, right? And so one of the things that jumped out at me as I was researching more around this movement and how the movement has been perceived is that this really feels like part of a national trend that collapses issues of poverty and insecurity and 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 lack of food security, housing security, access to healthcare, collapses those with dissent and organizing and everything like that. And so there's a lot of editorials in in Atlanta newspapers, like pro-cop newspapers, collapsing all of these things and pointing out that police morale has been so bad since the 2020 protests that they really need these facilities Aww. to kind of just go in and, and have pep talks and and oh uh and and you know work on on their mental self-care together, <laughs> but that, you know, there's no space in the budget for actually taking care of people uh, as a way to reduce crime. And so a lot of those kinds of debates, I think, are wrapped up in this, particularly on the side of like propping up or justifying cop city. And so the idea becomes, this is so inherently justified because police morale is down and because we have all these social contagions that we need police to deal with. It must be criminal to oppose this, right? And, and then right. you get some of these indictments. Yeah, I, I like the idea there that, yeah, the police morale is low, so we need to build a place for them to have, you know, assemblies, uh, pep rallies, uh, various, you know, a cheerleading squad to come out and, you know, sis boom and just and also that, yeah, we need to, you know, colonize in, you know, forest space and, and really like build a fake city for the cops instead of investing in the city for the people in the real city where the people in the real city yeah. that's right there um that needs more housing and and like more social services which might actually reduce crime. That's exactly right. And I'm so glad, Calvin, that you're bringing up specifically this issue of the sort of this sort of creep of criminalization of various sort of like things that are otherwise classified as like, you know, structural problems with a society, the fact that people are going without housing, without food and other things of that nature being turned into criminal activity or being described in criminal terms. That is really one of the big essences of, I think, what we're going to get into reading through some of the most recent criminal charges that have been leveled against protesters. Before we get into that, I just want to read a little bit of just a sort of truncated history of Cop City, just to kind of give our listeners a sense of what this issue is all about, how it started, where it's come from, and where uh, where it stands right now. So the original proposal for the construction of the so-called Atlanta Public Safety Training Center, aka Cop City, and it's more colloquial, I 
that's what the Wikipedia article calls it. They liter- the Wikipedia right. says Cop City, uh, not Atlanta Public Safety Training Center. So the so-called Public Safety Training Center, a.k.a. Cop City. Was but Cop present- City was a term coined by protesters. Yes, that's correct. Yep, And it's yep. a great, great term yeah. for it. A very, yes, yeah. It's not only, you know, kind of alliterative, but it's nice and short and concise. It does a good job of describing kind of what this is. It was presented to the city of Atlanta in 2021 by the Atlanta Police Foundation. Foundation, which is essentially the nonprofit fundraising arm of the Atlanta Police Department. In case you're curious, the APF reported a revenue of $28.1 million in 2021, the year after George Floyd was murdered, the highest uh, of all similar police foundations with major donations coming from corporate entities like Delta Airlines, Waffle House, The Home Depot, Georgia Pacific, Accenture, Equifax, Wells Fargo, and UPS. So an incredibly well-funded nonprofit, quote unquote, fundraising arm for the Atlanta Police Department that is not officially affiliated with the APD as a government structure. So that year, the site was chosen for construction in the South River Forest area of DeKalb County, which is southeast of Atlanta. This land had been inhabited by indigenous Muscogee peoples until the 1830s, when they were forcibly removed via the Trail of Tears. Uh, The site was later turned into a prison work camp, which operated from 1920 until 1995. So already we're getting a sense that sort of like the history of this land is already rife with controversy over, you know, what went on there, you know, what its relationship with the community is. And I just I thought that those were kind of some fascinating pieces of its history generally, where they are intending to build this police training facility already itself has an a kind of historical uh, kind of terrible legacy of colonialization and imprisonment. So the project in 2021 was endorsed by then Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms with the site clearing to begin construction in May 2022. From the very outset of Cop City's announcement, the site has been occupied by various degrees of protests and public gatherings designed to disrupt and generate public outcry about the facility's construction. The protesters, organizers with groups like Defend the Atlanta forest uh, have decried, as Sophie mentioned, the environmental impact of deforesting an area adjacent to neighborhoods populated predominantly with black and brown residents. In a similar vein, protest organizers were concerned with what Cop City represented and would materially enact, an expansion of an already bloated police budget and resources in a climate of continually escalating violence against people of color perpetrated by law enforcement. Between December 2022 and March 2023, getting a little further towards the present, 28 protesters were arrested and charged with domestic terrorism in association with their occupation and protests of the Cop City site. A particular flashpoint in the movement came when 26-year-old forest protector who went by the name Tortuia was shot and killed by police as they were emerging from their tent. As protests escalated over the next several months, the number of protesters arrested and charged with domestic terrorism climbed to above 40, causing the organization Human Rights Watch to decry Atlanta prosecutors' actions as, quote, an attempt to smear protesters as national security threats. Currently, activists and organizers are attempting to force a referendum in the city of Atlanta on Cop City, which could potentially cancel the city's lease to the APF. In September of this year, so very recently, a petition with 116,000 voter signatures, well above the 70,000 required to force a referendum, was submitted to the Atlanta City Council, who refused to count them on the grounds that organizers had, quote, missed a deadline to submit signatures. 
interesting. The matter is currently being litigated in the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals as of the time of this recording, but particularly prudent for this episode. Also, as of this month, 61 activists, some of those who have already been charged with domestic terrorism, were indicted on state-level RICO charges. So I just want to ask you guys now, what do you what do you know about, about RICO charges? This may be a term that some of our listeners have heard before. Do you know what this means for somebody to be given a RICO charge? Well, I've seen The Dark Knight. So of course I know. I thought it was about like racketeering. Yeah, it is about racketeering. It's about (laughs) like like mob, like basically criminal organizations. If you indict, at least this is my memory of how Maggie Gyllenhaal explains it in (laughs) The Dark Knight. Um, We're gonna queue up that clip. (laughs) Yeah, we'll get that clip. Rico, they pooled their money. We can charge them all as one criminal conspiracy. Charge them. In a RICO case, if you can charge one of the conspirators with a felony, you can charge, charge all of them with a felony. RICO, yeah, you yeah. can charge one. So if you charge one like member of the organization, anyone else you can associate with the organization at least becomes much easier to charge. So it's a yes. way to charge a ton of people at once based on fairly loose association. And and this yes. like body of prosecutorial law like came out of indicting like mafia as far as i know is that right out that that is correct yeah the federal rico act which stands for racketeer influenced and corrupt organizations was built as you said calvin in uh out of the uh, prosecuting of basically yeah the mafia more or less this was intended and of course most recently was used to charge trump and giuliani and like you know the their whole you know their whole mob yes uh of of you know, characters like rejected um, Scorsese characters <laughs> for uh, trying to steal the election. I feel like Joe Pesci actually could do a pretty convincing Giuliani if we, oh, yeah. if we, if we, if that that movie ever gets made. You know, Pesci, be on the be on the lookout. <laughs> Please, God, I'll see what I can let do. that happen. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So, yes, uh, Calvin, you are exactly right. These charges, uh, state level RICO charges, so not federal criminal indictments. The Georgia RICO Act is, in fact, based on the, the federal RICO Act, but the Georgia Act is written to be much broader. This is according to the Wikipedia site that uh, has some references on it. While the federal act requires an extended pattern of crime by multiple individuals through a criminal enterprise, under the Georgia Act, only one individual may constitute a criminal enterprise. Additionally, the enterprise as a whole must commit only two interrelated crimes toward a common goal. The Georgia Act also has a wider range of underlying crimes than the federal act. So basically, it's easier to charge somebody on and get make the charges stick on a RICO indictment in Georgia than it would even be at the federal level. So if if like, Alex, if you get charged with something, Sophie and I can go down because uh, yes. we're part of the same enterprise here as long as they can prove that we had zoom calls together that we you know have uh i mean we don't actually have any monetary association i think between any of us so that might be a little harder to make stick except for you know our our uh, long lost t-shirt funds those right. are those are and the uh, buttons the buttons and the yes. magnets that we made <laughs> several years back those of you that have been lucky enough to either attend Carnegie Mellon University with us or meet us at a conference where we've been giving these things out will know. Uh, you might also be involved in this as well. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, you know, be sure to not post any pictures of you with uh, reverb stickers in the background. Uh, otherwise, you could get roped in. 
So as you said too, Calvin, yeah, Trump and his cohorts were essentially indicted on the exact same style of charges. It was the same prosecutorial body that actually brought those charges against both Donald Trump and the defend the Atlanta forest protesters. We have this like handy example, counterexample of Trump and his cronies who are obviously, or it seems obvious to me that they're doing something that they stand to benefit from and and their you know the RICO charges I think are targeting their actions trying to profit from their positions of power. I don't quite see if we're trying to draw an analogy if if both of these cases are able to be you know, slapped with RICO charges. I'm not really sure what the protesters are trying to how they're trying to profit or I mean it seems like they're trying to stop something from happening. It doesn't seem like there's any money at stake. It doesn't you know, if this green space isn't worth anything and we can just raise it because it doesn't matter, it's a little tr- hard to follow the logic of how this could be conceived of as a any kind of a criminal enterprise or racketeering because where's the profits? Where the, where's the money that they would, you know what I mean? Like I, my understanding yeah. of RICO charges is that it targets people who are profiting off of bad behavior. And I just don't see that in the stop cop city movement. Yeah, it doesn't seem like a, 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 a great, career builder like a like a right. like a like a smart like a super savvy financial decision to join this protest movement and that's yeah. i mean to me that's that's a compliment to the protest movement right, right. but yeah. like i'm like i'm not ragging on them like i'm saying yeah like i agree with you sophie like who benefits qui bono or however bono. you say that uh but i think like we can also ask qui bono in regards to like these kinds of charges, like why would they do this? Well, I think as we get into the text of it, that'll become clear. Like this sends a really strong message. Don't get organized or like we'll come after you. Yeah. Almost like the act of organizing in itself is the crime. And how dare you? Yes. Isn't it handy that the police are the ones that, you know, <laughs> that like it's very convenient to be able to call anything criminal if it opposes you, which is as far as I can tell what's happening. Right. There is that kind of ethos of I am the law. And if you oppose me, therefore you You must must be be a criminal. Exactly. Even though, you know, you are a government body whose powers can be limited by the people that you uh, are represented in your, you know, the police. As far as I'm, as far as I know, whose tax dollars fund the police force that's pressing charges. So bingo. Yeah. One really quick thing I wanted to add, just because I don't know if I don't know if we're going to come back to it since we're talking at this level about Rico. I have a personal pet peeve about anything and any kind of rhetoric or discourse that equivocates between things that Donald Trump and like his cronies do and things that the left has done or is doing. And this just seems like the latest, most like mind numbing example of that, where you could use the same statute to charge Trump for like things that are legitimately really, really bad, like that, that I think he should face consequences for and, and his like organization like is, is truly a criminal organization. You know, if, if that term has any meaning outside of ideology but to to apply that same kind of rhetoric to an organization that's really like doing something that just kind of makes a lot of sense and 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 is pretty like nationally recognized as like a, a legitimate like justified like social cause 
from a lot of different angles, environmental and criminal justice reform. So yeah, that's like a pet peeve. And it's just like, yeah, like I said, the latest awful example of this equivocation across both sides of the political spectrum. No, I think you're absolutely right, Calvin. The way that this is being framed as a kind of like both sides, both sides do it. You know, both sides have these kind of like anti-government or anti-establishment tendencies as if community organizing and conspiring to overturn the results of a presidential election in a state are even close to the same thing in terms of you know what Sophie was talking about earlier the material stakes uh here of what you intend to personally gain off the backs of other people that you are exploiting totally does not it's a i mean it's a completely false equivocation i think you're absolutely right with that and i think it's going to be interesting cuz i want to actually now dive into some of the actual text of this indictment i went ahead and read through the 109 page document so that you listeners don't have to and i've pulled out some of the uh, what I think are some of the juiciest bits in what is truly, I think, I mean, I've read a few of these court documents in my time, uh, you know, not that I've ever been indicted on RICO charges, at least, you know, allegedly, as far as everyone on here knows, this is probably one of the most astoundingly sloppily written indictment documents that I have ever seen handed down by a prosecutor. And I genuinely think that this is this is dangerous. Like I I I have to go out on a limb like being fully sincere. This is one of the I think scariest pieces of rhetoric that I have read in a very long time. Just in the threat that it poses to social movements more broadly, uh, movements that are concerned primarily with equity and justice at their heart, but also just the overreach of the policing apparatus of the state into genuine First Amendment rights to speech and association. This, this to me, is a huge, huge overstep that you could actually classify as uh, – I would go as far as classifying it as authoritarian, which I do not use that word lightly, but – I want to get into this a little bit because it's also just like there are some just like astonishing pieces of like goofy rhetoric in here that I think are really worth touching on with you all. So reading here, this is a beginning in the early part of the document where the prosecutors are outlining a definition of what Defend the Atlanta Forest is. The purpose of Defend the Atlanta Forest is to occupy of parts, this is all, I'm reading this verbatim from the document, is to occupy of parts or all of 381 forested acres in DeKalb County, Georgia that is owned by the Atlanta Police Foundation and leased by the city of Atlanta for the purpose of preventing the construction of of the Atlanta Public Safety Training Center. Each individual charged in this indictment knowing joined the conspiracy. Again, that is a that's really in there. Knowing joined the conspiracy in an attempt to prevent the training center from being built. That conspiracy contained the, a common purpose to commit two or more acts of racketeering activity in Fulton County, Georgia, elsewhere in the state of Georgia and in other states. Defend the Atlanta Forest is a self-identified coalition and enterprise of militant anarchists, eco-activists, and community organizers. Based in Atlanta, this anarchist, anti-police, and environmental activism organization coordinates, advertises, and conducts quote-unquote direct action designed to prevent the construction of the Atlanta Public Safety Training Center and Shadowbox Studios, previously known as Black Hall Studios, and promote anarchist ideas. So... What do you guys think of this definition of defend the Atlanta forest as an organization so far? First of all, it needs copy edited. 
<laughs> yeah, seriously, this is a professional writer's nightmare. <laughs> yeah, but um, I love this like it promote anarchist ideas. Like they just toss that in there. Like and yeah. they're anarchists too. Like <laughs> oh, okay, like it does seem like they're banking on not a lot of people actually reading this itself and more being like wow it's long which i think is i mean i'm not a law professional but that does seem like part of it it's like it's just long it just it's like it's you know obviously it's interesting like whoever gets to decide what the crime is is the person in in power so is the crime that this forest is being torn down for this ridiculous reason or is the crime that people don't want it i don't know it just it's, it's interesting how you know obviously obviously people do have the, the right to protest in this country and that's written into <laughs> amendments to the constitution but uh it just sounds like there this is this document is written as if that is not the case that people don't have a right to protest yeah. Point of information. What is Shadowbox Studios again? Did we discuss that earlier? <laughs> no, we did not. So in case you are interested, uh, Shadowbox Studios, as, as far as I've been able to tell in the kind of nascent research that I've done, does not really appear to have much to do with the actual police itself. For those of you that may not know, Atlanta and just the state of Georgia in general is a very popular location for filming movies and TV shows, just because the, the state in general has, I think, done a pretty decent job uh, how you, however you define decent of incentivizing film and television producers to come in and uh, film in their state by providing, you know, cheap overhead and other kinds of tax breaks or other incentives for studios to set up shop there. So if you ever see like the Georgia peach at the, uh, in the end credits of your favorite TV show, you'll know that that is part of that incentive structure. Uh, Shadowbox Studios is an American film and television production studio located southeast of Atlanta in DeKalb County, Georgia. The studio housed productions of many films and TV programs and has worked with Hollywood studios, including Disney, Universal, Sony, Warner Bros., and HBO. They've produced films such as Godzilla, King of Monsters, Jumanji, The Next Level, uh, Venom. They've got some MCU IP in there as well. Doctor Sleep. They've also produced TV shows like Lovecraft Country and Ms. Marvel. So that is what Shadowbox Studio is. Okay. And so it's... It's expanding into the same space, or that's the plan. Yes. Yep. Okay. Well, that I mean, that is fascinating. Like, just you know, slightly separate from the the indictment itself. Like, I didn't know about that. That was part of this development as well. Oh, and yes. The fact the fact that some of the content that Shadowbox produces is also extremely militaristic, like Godzilla King of Monsters. I, I think Godzilla King of Monsters, Alex was. One of the films that was produced with military cooperation. I believe that's um, correct. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That, that Roger Stahl examined in in his documentary. I know that some of the recent Godzilla movies have been have were like on Roger's list. So the the fact that they're indicting DTF not only for um, this like act of like daring to prevent construction of this police training center, but also like you know, shutting down these great movies that we all love is interesting. But yeah, no, I mean, it's terribly written. And of course, like they're throwing in, I mean, the fact that they would say this anarchist anti-police and environmental activism organization as a way to define DTF, I think is extremely problematic. Like anarchist, you know, is arguably an objective term of political philosophy, but anti-police is extremely ideologically charged. And environmental is also fairly objective or fairly neutral, but to just kind of toss in these like 
ideological terms alongside just classifications, I think is really problematic. Yeah, there's a lot of sort of definitional conflation that, slippage. Uh, th- yeah, slippage and conflation that goes along yeah. in this document. And I'm I'm glad that you brought up the definitions of anarchism or anarchy because, as we know, those of us who have studied rhetoric, go back and listen to our episode on stasis theory. You'll know that in uh, legalistic rhetoric, uh, definition is the second uh, stasis level at which you need to define the terms of your arguments, such that your later evaluations and actions can be justified on the basis of those definitions. How we define anarchy or anarchism and its associated ideological principles here uh, becomes very, very important. And that is exactly what our prosecutors are going to do in this document next. So a couple of definitions here, and then I want to get your reactions to the definitions of four key concepts, uh, or I guess five, Uh, anarchy, collectivism, mutual aid, social solidarity, and violence. Here we go. Anarchy is a philosophy that is opposed to forms of authority or hierarchy. Beginnings of anarchist ideals date back centuries, though the usage of the term anarchy did not exist until the 1800s. Somebody in there must have had access to an Oxford English Dictionary. Good job doing doing your research. Over time, various philosophical forms of anarchy have emerged. Numerous anarchist philosophies exist, though anarchists are not required to subscribe to one particular belief of anarchy. Rather, the notion... (laughs) Sorry, go for it. (laughs) I love this, like, just like, you know, they're not required. Uh, <laughs> you are not required to subscribe to receive benefits from anarchism. <laughs> oh, but that actually becomes very important. Let's put a footnote or put a bookmark on that notion of you don't have to subscribe to one form of anarchy. So rather, the the notion of anarchy being grounded in an anti-authority mindset primarily targets government because it views government as unnecessarily oppressive. Instead of relying on a modicum of government structure, anarchy relies on human association instead of government to fulfill all human needs. Some of the major ideas that anarchists promote include collectivism, mutualism slash mutual aid, and social solidarity. And these same ideas are frequently seen in the Defend the Atlanta forest movement. Collectivism is the idea that individual needs are subordinate to the good of the whole society. That is, decisions are made based upon what is best for the group and not necessarily what is best for individuals. In embracing collectivism, individuals are expected to sacrifice personal income, personal liberty, or personal property if it benefits society as a whole. The decision of whether an individual should sacrifice their own individual needs is not made by the individual. Rather, in a true collectivist society, the society as a whole decides whether the individual must forfeit their own needs or property if it is deemed to benefit the society. Nevertheless, in an ideal collectivist society, individuals already make the decision to donate to the collective without prompting from others. Donate. <laughs> Donate now. <laughs> Click here. <laughs> like and subscribe to collectivism. I just Yeah, reverb. I, reverb is 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 begging for your donations to collectivism. Yes. Please. Yes, please. Donate. Click the to- button. Click the button in the episode description to donate to the concept of collectivism. We would love to collect your donations. Um yes. it's I mean, come on. Like the sacrifice of personal income, personal liberty or personal property, if it benefits society, like this feels like it was written by like an anarcho-capitalist from the the Von Mises group. Like, I mean, it probably was, but but, but here's the thing, but here's the thing, like what jumped out about that to me was 
you're expected to sacrifice personal income, personal liberty, or personal property if it benefits society as a whole. Well, that has never happened to me under capitalism. I don't nope. know about either either of you. <laughs> Clearly, individualism prevents you from ever having to sacrifice personal income, personal liberty, or personal property because those things those things are are, are totally off limits under capitalism. Yeah. It, it makes me think that the IRS is the next organization they're going to come after for yeah, uh, RICO. RICO charges because yeah, of a, a, coordin- a coordinated conspiracy to uh, to collectively promote the the uh, the good of a whole society rather than one individual person's uh, profit. Or how about the city government in Atlanta? You know, which which is is obviously like not at all sacrificing people's personal income for the police, for this exact project that they're mm-hmm. indicting people for opposing. Yeah. Or maybe the uh, the uh, the Atlanta Police Foundation and the way that they actually solicit donations from people. If any of you have watched the uh, the new Max series telemarketers, you will particularly know that this is a pernicious donation scheme at the heart of a lot of uh, police unions, so-called, and police foundations that you know promote promote your local police department. That's the collectivism that we believe in here. So I want to go on to these other two terms because these get really, truly wild here. Mutual aid is a term popularized by anarchists to describe individuals who exchange goods and services to assist other individuals in society without government intervention. Closely related to collectivism, mutual aid is not a new term, nor is it limited to anarchy. However, the major factor in anarchist mutual aid is the absence of government and the absence of hierarchy. Indeed, an anarchist belief relies on the notion that once government is abolished, individuals will rely on mutual aid to exist. In doing so, anarchists believe that individuals will work together and voluntarily contribute their own resources to ensure that each individual has its own needs met. It's just interesting how on the right, I feel like we hear a lot of the times like, oh, the left wants big government, but also they're anarchists and they don't want any government at all. Like, which is it? Because it seems like not wanting a lot of government intervention, telling us what to do and how to spend our money and how to live our lives is sort of, I, I've heard that from people on the right as like, that's what we should be moving towards, but not if it's anarchy, which is a different way of there not being government involved. Like, but I don't know. It just seems like a very convenient way of framing it. Like it's bad when they do it. But um, if you were to ask this in a slightly different way, you might get a different or, or you do you know what I mean? It just it feels like absolutely it's like very selective about when it's good or bad to not want government dictating what goes on. It's so conceptually yep. confused. I mean, even just this line closely related to collectivism, mutual aid, blah, 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 like that, that connecting phrase seems totally unsupported because a lot of what they were describing as collectivism is impossible under this definition of mutual aid i also just have to point out like they they the, the copy editing gets even worse in this pair i mean not only are they not making nouns and articles agree but insure is spelled wrong <laughs> yep. it's like the person who wrote it is so incensed by these concepts that they can't even think straight because it's so infuriating. It's yes, like, I exactly. I love imagining that, Sophie. Just somebody who's just like spitting mad, reading yeah. <laughs> like just absolutely like, just nude and red, <laughs> writing this writing this indictment report. And they're not going to go back and even re- proofread it because they don't even want to think about it twice because it's no. so 
offensive to them to imagine a world of if you've ever seen that that gif of the cat just banging on the keyboard that's yes that's 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 who this is guy who wrote this yeah (laughs) that's right that's right oh my god okay a couple more definitions here social solidarity these are also like don't threaten me with a good time kind of definition social solidarity is another term that is embraced by anarchists that is tied closely to mutual aid and collectivism social solidarity is the idea that individuals can live together without government and can provide for each other. The notion of social solidarity relies heavily on the idea of human altruism. That is, individuals will voluntarily offer goods, services, and resources without anything compelling it. Anarchists often shorten the term social solidarity simply into the term solidarity, and it is frequently woven into speeches, statements, and writings of anarchists. In addition to the term solidarity and other anarchist terms, anarchists often weave the term mutual aid and collective into their jargon and writings. Love this rhetorical analysis here, baby. Let's go. Really, truly some just just wait until they get into uh, where they start reading blog posts from anarchist websites. That is, yeah, uh, yeah, truly, truly astonishing stuff here. I Um, I love the idea like they weave these into their jargon and writings. What is the legal? I really don't want to swear too much on this for weaving something into jargon. Yeah. Like, like, why are you doing this like freshman? comp ass rhetorical analysis in this legal document what is going on in this thing i mean we can see a very subtle not i mean you're you're right in pointing out that their word choices here are sort of like they're weaving it in it's very sneaky and subterfuge the way that they're doing this assuming that all these definitions are supposed to be evidence of how bad it is like oh they think people are good and that they'll help each other yeah yeah they'll, they'll do it without anybody telling them to like like well, the assumption being that like we know people are bad and they won't do that like yeah is you know that what? astonishing it is Sophie? The, you, oh my god <laughs> you know and this is something we've talked about on the show many many times before this this idea that rhetoric is inherently suspect if you're using rhetoric you're using rhetorical techniques that you you must have something to hide or you must have bad intentions so can you believe it they shorten the term social solidarity to solidarity for the sake it's of concision so that we wouldn't know what they're talking about and they and weave it into speech. speeches they weave it into those damn speeches and you just don't know what you're doing and the next thing you know you're helping your fellow human being yeah yeah the yeah. very idea and again, just to just to kind of like do a reality check for those of our listeners who may have forgotten, this is a prosecutorial indictment that is being presented against 61 people, charges that could carry up to 20 years in prison and fines in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Just to yeah, remind I feel you, like I the, did in reading this, I kind of started to think this was like a student's essay. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it feels like, like some very yeah, high it's... stakes legal document that was presented in a real actual public real life way this is like chat gpt write me a five paragraph essay about these key terms right yeah no it's it's genuinely astonishing violence is part of the anarchism in some anarchist beliefs viewing their own violent acts as political violence violent anarchists god they need to put violence in here a few more times political (laughs) violence violent anarchists attempt to frame the government as violent oppressionists thereby justifying the anarchists own violence okay so that was one two three four five uses of uh, the term violence in that last sentence indeed the belief is that the government is engaging in a form of violence by denying basic individuals basic needs through uh, capitalism, government action, and law enforcement by police. 
Anarchists often point to law enforcement as one of the chief violent actors, and they accuse the government of using law enforcement to oppress societal change. Hmm. And they view the structure of government as inherently oppressive and violent. As a result, violent anarchists often engage in violent activity towards law enforcement, and it is justified because of the anarchist's belief that ends justify the anarchist be. Oh my like, god. What is this? What is this? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, it, yeah, it really does feel like that's the that's the idea. Sophie is like violence, 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 violence. Like kind of like that that scene in in being John Malkovich when everyone like all of the yes. Malkoviches are just saying Malkovich. Yes, that, yes. That, that's what they're doing. There's another clip we can pull. Take a note on that, Alex. Malkovich. 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 Malkovich, 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 Malkovich. Wait a minute. It is justified because of the anarchist belief that the ends justify the anarchist means. So they also start doing, they also start bebopping and scatting with anarchist here at the end of the paragraph. Yes. Where yeah. we're inserting anarchists strategically to like just to amplify things to make them worse. Like anarchist yeah. means are, are worse than normal means. No, I mean, I think what you're pointing to here is the 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 essence of this paragraph is to is to definitionally and associationally link. I mean, this is Perlman and Ulbrecht's Titeka for you right here. The argument of association here is to create an inextricable link between anarchism and violence, even just right. by like repeating the terms over and over again, using this kind of like very almost childish, like parallel structure uh, in all of these sentences, you know, violent anarchists, anarchists. Anarchist violence, all all wrapped into one big package. This actually, but I it's mean, it's interesting though yeah. that in this page where, like, this paragraph is meant to sort of define violence as a term that we can understand within the context of this indictment, and they've said the word a whole lot. But they haven't I'm not defined it. Any actual examples of the said violent no. behavior? Because as far as I know, it's been people like squatting in a forest, sure. collecting signatures. Like, it's not clear to me that any of the activity that is being called into question is violent. I was kind of expect, maybe foolishly, I was expecting this paragraph to do the work of telling me like, how is it violent within the context of what we're talking about? But it hasn't even really named any examples. It just is sometimes they're violent. Sometimes they're, really they're violent. violent. They're really violent and violent. They're violent. The way in which they're violent is violent. These violent anarchists are very violent in their anarchy. They are. Like, I mean, the thing that I have to point out here as well is that there's this line, they accuse the government of using law enforcement to oppress societal change, which I don't understand what that means. Like, there, like there's also just basic logical problems in the prose where not only are they not defining violence and, and doing this incredibly sneaky thing of just saying violence a lot around the word anarchy, like, you know, to create an argument of association, but like, what, what does that mean to accuse the government of oppressing societal change i don't how do you oppress societal change i want to give some context here because i did uh, there was an actual point in this document where they did go through and provide a a, a self-described anarchist as they say uh, supporting the stop cop city movement recently wrote as such now there's no citation here so i'm not exactly sure where they're pulling this from they just give a block quote from a supposed self-identified anarchist this is kind of an interesting quote to bring in and this is the this is the local anarchist uh, that they are quoting here. 
<laughs> Local anarchist says violence good. Uh, the movement's militant <laughs> direct action, land occupation, and sabotage of construction machinery have not only kept the struggle alive, but shifted the Overton window when it comes to how even nonprofits are willing to engage the struggle. When asked about the sabotage of construction and police machinery, the referendum campaign, notably headed by nonprofits and electoral organizers, has continuously reiterated its support for a diversity of tactics in stark departure from many nonprofits nonprofits' more risk-averse approach to political action. Through a combination of tactics, the Stop Cop City has built a unified front against Cop City that is willing to fight by any means necessary. Just oh, as so with the, the violence is against machines. And yes, machines. yes. Oh, very important. Right. Very okay. important. Yep. Okay. Just, just as tactics that in directly engage the system, much of the militant direct action has also heightened contradictions and exposed hypocrisies, thrusting fundamental questions into public consciousness. Are we more concerned about the violence of destroying construction machinery and police property, or about the violence of capitalist exploitation, environmental devastation, and police murder? What do we do when it's liberal Democrats rather than Republicans who are leading the efforts to destroy an urban forest, suppress residents' right to vote, and expand the police state? Do we truly believe that Cop City is a matter of life and death? And if we do, what are we willing to do to stop it? As noted by the anarchist above, switching back into the voice of the prosecutor, the militant anarchists engage in violence to bring attention to their own political goals and their perceived government violence. <laughs> but political violence is not simply a philosophy. Defend the Atlanta Forest has put the philosophy into action. Indeed, in one example, a known Defend the Atlanta Forest arsonist was recorded complaining that there were not enough violent members in protests against the training center. All right, so couple problems there that recorded activist is is not being directly quoted there so we don't know if they were actually advocating violence but also something else i want to point out about this extended block quote that they're using from an activist is that within the block quote they're very careful to put scare quotes around violence when they're describing their own organizing right. tactics and activism tactics but then when we get out of the block quote the indictment implies that that activist is overtly like admitting to violence and right. and the activist never admits that that their own acts are violence yeah that's exactly right yeah and in fact they are saying i think that you know given a charitable reading of this of this block quote they are actually questioning what we actually mean by violence or at least which forms of violence should be considered morally reprehensible violence to objects and property or violence to real living breathing human beings and forests right and non yeah, non human like the, the, the living things is being quoted as saying like do we really care about the violence of destroying machinery is that important and then they go like the authors like so again, about this violence against the machine. <laughs> it's really bad. Like, and they're, and they're really admitting bad. to it. Look, he admitted. Oh my God. He admitted. Right. Look, he, he admitted. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He himself admitted it. So again, there there are the examples that they give are a little thin here. Jumping down a little bit. Uh, this is where we actually get into some of the, how these definitions are being applied to the actual charges that are being brought. So they, they go on for an extended period talking about the ways that anarchists spread their ideas around. They actually have a whole entire paragraph that I didn't include in this document on zines, which I thought was hilarious um, because they don't trust the uh, mainstream media just interestingly like not trusting the mainstream media which is very suspicious behavior among the anarchists but very well accepted as like 
on the right, of course, we don't trust mainstream media. Like, we acknowledge that mainstream media is not to be trusted, but not with the zines. No, like <laughs> also like any yeah, any time an editorial like dares to be published calling for police reform, yeah. that's that's bad media. But also having any criticism of the media makes you a violent anarchist. It's also bad. That's right. That's right. Just being mistrustful in general or being skeptical. It's a little sus yeah. uh, when they do. When they yes, yeah, so when activists do it. In addition to handing out documents, individuals who join Defend the Atlanta Forest are offered financial, personal, and emotional support to remain loyal to the movement. Again, very interesting rhetorical tack that's going on here. Indeed, the, quote, forest defenders are provided with monetary, emotional, and personal support during their occupation of the forest, during their incarceration, and after their incarceration. The discussions of support often refer to providing, quote, mutual aid and, quote, solidarity. In addition to providing monetary and emotional support, there is preparation for arrest. Most, quote, forest defenders are aware that they are preparing to break the law, and this is demonstrated by premeditation of attacks. Preparation efforts include efforts to avoid detection, plans to disguise their identity, and preparation in case of arrest despite efforts to avoid capture. Then they go on to define, like, dressing in all black and all these other scary tactics that use it. They actually have a section in here about using VPNs as being criminally suspicious behavior, which is, uh, I mean, you know, no comment on the broader significance of that claim. But I mean, just using a VPN is not illegal, like that's no. specious, specious at best. I mean, I just think I like, yeah, none of it's uh, illegal. Um, providing it's emotional illegal. support. I'll tell yeah. you what, <laughs> yeah. that well, should you're not be illegal. allowed to do that. Like, <laughs> which no. I mean, again, it's like, you know, it's so silly and we're poking fun at it, but like, this is like really laying bare a lot of the like necessary assumptions that are required in order for the police state to maintain power. Like, yes, people aren't going to be good to each other unless they're told to they shouldn't help help each other and there's no reason that they should like just just this idea that like you know like why do we need this big training facility well police need more training why because police are necessary because without them everything falls apart and it's just anarchist violence all the time so we gotta make this like this they're they're really trying to paint these people as like almost sort of like the very reason why we need a cop city is to like to guard us against these violent individuals. But then when they point to like the violence and nefarious behavior, it's like helping each other. Yes, exactly. Sophie, this is why I said earlier, this is like the don't threaten me with a good time section, right? It's like, what? Oh man. If we, if we didn't have like, they're protesting against cop city under the assumption that if we didn't have the coercive threat of violence against law breaking that arguably perpetuates more violence in society, then we might actually get to a point where we are actually relying on one another for support, both financial, personal, and emotional. Again, what a terrible world. What a terrible terrible world that would be. Not just the thing that, you know, police abolitionists and prison abolitionists have been calling for for decades. So anyway, this is uh, continuing on with this because, again, this is doing the work of conflating supporting one another with being an actor in a criminal enterprise. Uh, After arrest, emotional and personal support is offered through letter writing campaigns. 
God forbid, letter writing campaigns and encouragements of, quote, solidarity. In doing so, this offers emotional support and maintains the loyalty of the accused with the Defend the Atlanta Forest movement. On the other hand, an accused that demonstrates potential disloyalty to Defend the Atlanta Forest risk losing all financial, personal, and emotional support that is offered. One example included a threat to refuse to post bail for an incarcerated Defend the Atlanta Forest arrestee unless he complied with the Defend the Atlanta Forest demands. Again, citation needed directly in the text for that. But this is, Calvin, what you were referring to earlier with the, you know, like and subscribe and donate or whatever. Like you have to, you don't have to describe to a certain anarchist philosophy, except for when you do, in order to receive emotional, personal, and uh, financial support. Yeah. I mean, this is just like, first of all, that like threat to refuse to post bail for an incarcerated defend the Atlanta Forest arrestee, as you said, citation needed. Like we need to know much more about that example to hold up this claim, because I think that's a really important pivot where they're saying an accused that's disloyal to this group risks losing it all. Like that's really important to establish this as like an organization with teeth that will kind of like hold people accountable to it and, and to inflate them into this villain because everything else is just kind of like being part of a bingo club, you know, that meets once a week. Like there is literally no difference. Emotional solidarity, support, preparation. You got to know how bingo works. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Like if you look at it, they're just describing like, what it's like to be in any, as you said, like group or club. And if you're a not a general club, association, club, like, but it's right. also interesting how they're saying, like, first of all, can you believe that these people are using mutual aid to f- support one another emotionally and financially when they're facing charges? And can you believe that they would deny that support to people who aren't agreeing with them? Like, how terrible that they're doing it but how terrible that they're not doing it like yeah this is where it it becomes so so ridiculous you're exactly right sophie that this is this is where they are trying to pin the coercive the c in rico on defend the atlanta forest is the idea that if you are you know you are not being provided emotional personal and financial support unless you are fully in line with the belief structure of this you know decentralized political organization i mean if this really does stick, like, th- then we are in serious fucking trouble Ooh. as a society, yeah. just in terms of how, sorry for the language, but like, it really is true. Like, if you start defining these kinds of associations and providing things like emotional support to people contingent on whether or not you like consider them your friends or allies, like, this is like a, this, there, the potential for abuse of this is absolutely like it it knows almost no bounds well and it won't be limited to political organizations like of course that's our that's probably our number one concern absolutely but they're gonna come after your bingo club they're gonna come after your podcast yes your like podcast. <laughs> like there is no limit to this because the the terms of a coercive organization yeah it's just it's really any discourse community public enclave like any social unit can, like can but be um, yeah but not that, the police yeah, force not that. no because no, that, because not. that right because that has institutional structures that like inherently legitimate it but like anything in the broader civil society that's associated if those associations come about through like emotional support like practical support 
that's suspect. Yes. Uh, so so don't support people in groups or or you could get indicted. <laughs> yeah, no groups, no yeah. unions. No groups, no social bonds. Just be an individual seeking property uh, and profit yeah. in your own little like little bubble. Uh, They're coming for your fantasy football league <laughs> at work. Like for real. <laughs> no, seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Don't post anything too spicy in the chat uh, because yeah. as we'll see here, they, they do actually get some of that material. So anyway, we have a little bit more here that I think think is kind of interesting regarding how elusive an association gets to be defined as a criminal enterprise. Let's see how they do it here. Defend the Atlanta Forest is an unofficial Atlanta-based organization that frames itself as a broad, decentralized, autonomous movement that uses advocacy and direct action to stop the, quote, forest from being bulldozed in favor of police and sold out to Hollywood, end quote. Defend the Atlanta Forest does not recruit from a single location, nor do all Defend the Atlanta Forest members have a history of working together as a group in a single location. Nevertheless, the group shares a unified opposition to the construction of the Atlanta Police Department training facility, construction companies associated with the project, and companies associated with the construction properties in the around surrounding the forest. That is, again, just, I have to leave these in here just so you can know how sloppily this document is written. It's really really, really poor. As the group has grown and recruited, it has evolved into a broader anti-government, anti-police, and anti-corporate extremist organization. Defend the Atlanta Forest is made up of three primary ideologies. The first ideology is an anti-law enforcement ideology that attempts to push a narrative that all police are violent, militant individuals that frequently use excessive force and violence against innocent citizens. I wonder where they got that idea from. The goal of this ideology is the elimination of police forces in their entirety. The second ideology is the protection of the environment at all costs. This ideology promotes the belief that the environment has the same rights as humans, and therefore violence is acceptable to defend the environment. The Defend the Atlanta Forest organization acknowledges that they embrace this extremist ideology. And then finally... The third ideology that they mention is an anarchist ideology. So we've been through this. As a result of all three ideologies joining forces, the group has been able to quickly recruit nationwide support of extremists, including out-of-state extremists that have traveled to Georgia. Many of these extremists embrace violence and anarchy, and they use the forest as a guise for their violent agenda. Which, even though they're inherently so separate, somehow these violent actors have woven them together to make it seem like they're related, mm-hmm. which is so tricky because obviously they have nothing to do with one another, those three things. Right. <laughs> no connection. The United States Department of Homeland Security has classified individuals as alleged domestic violent extremists. In a bulletin posting, the Department of Homeland Security concluded that, quote, the alleged DVEs, domestic violent extremists in Georgia, have cited anarchist violent extremism, animal rights slash environmental extremism, and anti-law enforcement sentiment to justify criminal activity in opposition to a planned public safety training facility in Atlanta. Criminal acts have included an alleged shooting and assaults targeting law enforcement and property damage targeting the facility, construction companies, and financial institutions for their perceived involvement with the planning facility. But they are straight up using an example in which the police killed a protester and then people were mad about that as evidence of the protesters being extremists. Yes. In not liking that one of them was killed by police. Because that's they keep using similarly to where they use violence, like violence, violence is violent because it's violent. Violence is so violent. 
seems like extremism is used, being used in exactly the same way. Like it's it's extreme. Th- their views are extreme, and they're yeah, it's extreme. extreme to be upset that that someone was killed. Yes. Yeah, that is essentially the contention that they're making here is that, again, extremism is this kind of blanket term that we can use to describe. Again, I think it's prudent to point out something you mentioned earlier, Calvin, everything from Donald Trump trying to steal an election to protesters trying to occupy a forest to stop the construction of a police training facility like these are not the same thing. <laughs> they are not even uh, you can't even you can't do the horseshoe theory uh, rhetoric with this. Like it just it's not even close to the same scale. I also just love the fact that they even acknowledge up here that they are decentralized, autonomous, that they never meet. They have there's no evidence that they've ever recruited from a single location or have a history of working together in a single location. Like, how do you prove criminal conspiracy against an organization that you yourself admit is autonomously organized, decentralized, is only people who are gathering out of their association based on a common goal, political goal. Like, how do you how do you prove that that's a criminal conspiracy? That makes no sense to me. Yeah, it's it's a totally con- contradictory argument established in totally embarrassingly bad prose, because if, if the entire purpose of this document is to really rhetorically constitute a criminal organization that you can then indict and and indict all their members or or as many you know far more members than you would without a rico indictment you're including all of this stuff that undermines that that's like they're decentralized you don't actually have to hold anarchist beliefs to be an anarchist like there's all of these things that they include to show how loose the association is but at the very same time they're saying this is a really strong association and it's so strong we need to indict like 70 people, you know, as being part of the same conspiracy. Yeah. It also very ca- like for all of the accusations of violence, it just very casually mentions like, yeah, we did kill that guy. Oh, yeah, we killed a guy. But, yep. um, you know what I mean? Like that's that's not part of the violence. Like, we're yeah, that happened. That happened. But like the violence was when they didn't like it. That's mm-hmm. the violent part. And and also right. I should say making making the completely specious allegation without framing it as such framing it as fact that uh, the group is justifying the shooting of a Georgia state trooper which again not at all proven in a court of law at any point like this is i i i hope that they get this thrown out just for how fast and loose they play with facts generally mm-hmm. in this indictment that is uh that is a really egregious uh oversight on whoever typed this up like trying to remain even just basically factual and falling completely flat We'll kind of briefly skim over some of these other parts, but this part I wanted to really zone in on just because this is truly like I, this just to me says a lot about whoever the doofus was that wrote this thing. So they're describing a a video that a certain what they call a black clad defend the Atlanta forest participant is talking about uh, how they are defining the different actors that are involved in this. So this goes back to. The previous paragraph, we had them talking about the fact that criminal acts have involved in alleged shooting, assaults targeting law enforcement, and property damage targeting uh, facility construction companies and other financial institutions for their perceived involvement with the facility. Uh, The black-clad Defend the Atlanta Forest participant describes the Atlanta Police Foundation, APF, as a, quote, consumer in purchasing construction services from a general contractor, Brassfield and Gorey. 
Brassfield and Gorey is in charge of major Atlanta Police Foundation project components such as structural engineering, blueprint making, and zoning, and works with subcontractors to achieve these objectives. The Defend the Atlanta Forest strategy, drawing from the art of war by Sun Tzu, is to attack the strategy uh, and allies of your enemy in order to, quote, separate the subcontractors from the contractor and the contractor from the APF. So, like... You, first of all, just like quoting Sun Tzu in here, like <laughs> no one, there is no evidence in here that any anarchist member has read the art of war, but like, what kind of like dork do you have to be to cite that in here and say, they're clearly drawing from this, this know, classic military strategy text. Like what are you talking about? Yeah. And they're using it to make this bizarre point that, they're trying to separate the police foundation from the company that they're contracting with, like divide and conquer. Like they're using this strategy of divide and conquer by describing a basic financial relationship between right. like the provider I, of construction I services. Of the partnership. One other paragraph that I wanted to mention here, and this is where we get into the actual meat of the allegations that they're making about uh, conspiracy and racketeering. Notably, according to the website for Network for Strong Communities, so this is an organization that they identify as based in Atlanta. It is basically a, a sort of mutual aid network and a bail fund. So according to the website for this Network for Strong Communities organization, the Atlanta Solidarity Fund is not primarily designed as a bail fund to pay the bonds for indigent inmates that cannot afford bond. Rather, the Atlanta Solidarity Fund's primary purpose is to, quote, provide support for people who get arrested at protests or otherwise prosecuted for their movement involvement. A recent example includes posting a $392,000 cash bond for a defendant charged with domestic terrorism while indigent defendants remained incarcerated as pretrial detainees. So again, they're trying to use this like a bail fund, which is a, as far as I know, a very above board legal form of association and the use of monetary funds as evidence for a criminal conspiracy to get people indicted for domestic terrorism out of jail. And are, are they kind of making the argument in this paragraph as well that like they describe it as a bail fund for indigent defendants, but they're yes. actually using it for their own activists. And it's yes. like- but those activists maintain the bail fund. Like it's kind of like basic yes. support to keep the bail fund going. No. Yes, absolutely. That's what I would argue. It honestly trying to frame this as like conspiracy fraud and money laundering, which they will do further down here is just like, it's, it's as flimsy as wet cardboard. Like it really just does not hold any weight whatsoever. And I mean, I really, again, hope that the Georgia court that's going to hear this uh, feels the, uh, or the judge feels the same way here. I just want to make a note here, just kind of by way of drawing a conclusion here of the actual conspiracy charges of the actual counts that are listed in this indictment. There are a total of 225 total conspiracy 
counts of racketeering against uh, 61 defendants. So it's a pretty broad set of RICO charges. There are 61 people that have been indicted here for their participation. 43 of these counts are literally, I'm not joking here, I went through and counted these. 43 of these 225 counts are for posting information related to the protest movement on a blog. And this is, quote, thereby knowingly using threats against construction officials with the intent to cause and induce construction officials to withhold records, documents, and testimony in official proceedings. This was an overt act in furtherance of the conspiracy. Just as an example of what one of these blog posts looks like, this is one of the counts right here. On June 25th, 2021, there are three names here that are listed. I won't read them out. Along with unindicted co-conspirators that are unknown to the grand jury, did publish a post on scenes.noblogs.org linking to another article on itsgoingdown.com that advocates for more property damage and encouraging further property damage, thereby knowingly using threats against construction officials with the intent to cause and induce them to withhold records, documents, and testimonies in official proceedings. There basically arguing like just a distilled like TLDR on this. They're saying that posting on this anarchist blog publicly on the internet so that potentially if the construction people wanted to read them, they could see these as threats and potentially coerce them to stop building or stop uh, their construction contracts on Cop City. So post posting matters. They're talking about (laughs) like the thing that they're talking about, like the quote, violent act that's being discussed is sabotaging equipment and that here is being stated as a threat against the construction officials correct the idea that machinery would be sabotaged is the it is equivalent to threatening the human in charge of that equipment is what i'm reading here which that's 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 correct yeah those those construction workers are contiguous with their uh bulldozers and machines like yeah there's no distinction between them included in this i also have to point out it's not even like a direct post it's a link to another post that's saying whatever it is so be careful about any links you share because you're responsible for all of the content in in the link Exactly. No. And for that very, that was why I brought that example specifically in here, because I think that's one of the most dangerous counts that's included in here. I mean, they got 43 of these things. They were just like, they were reading posts on this blog just to try and find any possible, like, again, just like the flimsiest hint of an association between people who are posting on this website and encouragement of violent acts that could be construed as threats. It is astounding that they're trying to make this stick like this. I am not a lawyer, but like even just as somebody who basically knows how the law works, this is completely just a (laughs) it's such a spurious accusation. I cannot believe that they're actually moving. I mean, I, I know kind of why they're doing this and we'll probably talk more about this it's a cudgel it's meant to be used as uh, as like a chilling effect against activists i also just have to note here so 82 of these uh, of those 20 uh, 225 counts against the 61 defendants are for reimbursements of funds to defend the atlanta forest members from the network for strong communities the aforementioned bail fund and fundraising organization 46 of those 82 reimbursements so over half of them totaled less than $100 and were for things like camping supplies. So, so they're saying uh, that like if, if a group pools money 
and then they decide how to spend that money that's theirs that's they're being charged for like spending that money how they want to spend their own money yeah like is 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 that are the are those the money laundering charges correct correct yes Okay, yep. so that's money laundering is to use yeah. a mutual aid fund for its like obvious purpose that to, everyone to, knows about. Right, to buy equipment that they are alleging is being used in the furtherance of illegal activity. So, ah, okay. camp, so it, camping in the forest and occupying it using camping supplies purchased by this organization is evidence of a criminal conspiracy, a racketeering organization and money laundering. Okay. So, so if so, if the whole point of money laundering is like, okay, we're using this money, but we're actually using it for something that we said we weren't going to use it for, but we're using it for that instead. Right. Is <laughs> I guess, and because this is worded so badly, I'm not sure I understand. Are they saying that like the presence of mutual aid itself is money laundering, or this mutual aid fund that they say is for mutual aid, but it's actually for this other thing? That's the, that's the bad part. Like I can't pin down if they think that like just the act of mutual aid, like fundraising, is the crime or if they're they would be okay if they were using it for what they said they were going to use it for which is not this but something else herein lies the major problem sophie that i think you are identifying so very well with this confusion if you are not and you and i are not able to make sense of the vague and uh confusing wording in this document about whether or not mutual aid counts as money laundering then if this does indeed stick this could be used as pre- precedent to prosecute any use of mutual aid funds for political activity that is deemed suspect or that is deemed criminal in some way by law enforcement or by a prosecutorial entity. I think that that confusion is part of the point. I, I think that's that's the real key thing is that like if, you know if we're if we're which we shouldn't, but if we're being maximally charitable to them, their problem is not mutual aid itself. It's mutual aid funds being used to fund political activity that they have decided is criminal, right? right. Although they and did so that's, list mutual aid as like one of the founding like principles upon which this group is like one of the things that we're not supposed to like about the group. Oh, for right. sure, for sure. But I think these counts are specifically about. Okay, you use that mutual aid fund that you said was going to help people with their basic needs to help these people stay in the forest and like prevent Cop City from being built. And that's illegal. It's illegal to prevent Cop City from being built because we've decreed it from on high. And so like that's the really scary thing is that this is designed to make it harder and harder to fund protest. I mean, it's already hard enough in such a massive police state we have, in such a massive surveillance state we have under capitalism where it's just hard to organize things generally because people don't have time and they don't have money like how are you going to be able to sustain or maintain a movement if you can't fund it and i think this is really designed to to stop that right 100% yeah not only to staunch the funding but again like the fear here is also involved in like what level of or what degree of association counts as being involved in a criminal conspiracy, you know, whether or not it is, you know, fundraising for your organization or just simply posting on a blog, right? Like they're they're nailing people for posting links yeah. on the internet because that is construed as a public threat to these construction companies. I mean, it's baffling. It's truly baffling. You don't even have to commit it. You're, you're literally committing thought crime here. Like that's mm-hmm. the, that is what they're trying to produce. I don't think I'm being hyperbolic, right? In, in, in trying to assert that. No, no, I don't think so. And I, I mean, 
one one point I want to make about this, and I almost feel like we should have made this point like very early in the episode, but we're, we're kind of having fun with this because it's so like hilariously bad. It's badly written and it's badly argued, but obviously it's incredibly serious for these people who are who are indicted and and you know and and people who have already been harmed by the like police state that's trying to clamp down this movement and and I think like that gets at like kind of the broader terror uh, that's inflicted by this kind of rhetoric is that it doesn't need to be good like it it can be as shitty as it wants to be because it it's like inherently legitimated by the structures of power and like this is really like a great example you know of part of what the banality of evil means is like just this banal garbage like high school writing document can inflict incredible harm because of its position in an institutional hierarchy and and that's like it's it's funny at, at times but it's really scary like it's a it's a laugh that dies in your throat you know well said sophie any any final thoughts that you want to give for this by way of kind of coming to our conclusion here? I know we, we should probably sober up on this a little bit, but any any final thoughts that you want to offer? Yeah, I mean, I I think Calvin's right. It's you know, it's one of those things that like this should be so ridiculous. This should be like a laugh. This should be something that we can goof on for an hour and and call it a day. And like this is never, but like as Calvin has said, like the reality is that like there's a good chance that this will stick that this will work and then all the implications Alex that you've been discussing you know like even that even the document that this is you know the the context in which this is being done right like the very act of like let's raise this forest to build a police training like that in itself in my mind should be so ridiculous like of course we're not going to do that especially when there's like widespread public outcry you know they're they're trying to keep it out of elections because they know that if they vote on it it won't pass because the community does not want this and it's gone beyond the Atlantic community. Many people don't want this. It's people's tax dollars. They're saying they don't want it. This shouldn't even really be on the table, but the the power dynamic being what it is, it is on the table. And not only is the thing that they want to do on the table, also everybody else getting in trouble for not liking it is very much on the table. And it's horrifying. It's 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 horrifying. You kind of feel like what you know. I think we're trying to obviously lend a little insight and try to raise some visibility about the movement because I think I know. I mean, I'm very far from Atlanta, but I've been following this, and I want to know like what, how am I, how can I support this movement? Because you know, this thing should not happen, and I think that there's a thousand reasons why it shouldn't happen, and it's um, yeah, as Calvin said, it's chilling to think about that something so badly executed poorly written, flimsily, you know, reasoned that this is in this, you know, day and age in which we're living, that this is legit. Like this is a legit thing that you can come to the courts with is absolutely horrifying. Yeah. And I, and I just want to say, I think that like to take it back to what we talk about on the show, rhetoric and, and discourse and technical communication. I mean, I think this is a great example for like instructors to, to use in their classes because there are so many problems that you can point out with the writing, with the argument, with the use of sources, evidence, like sources of evidence, organization, like basic definitional claims. 
And so you can point those out and you can discuss that with students, but then you can raise this broader question of like, do these mistakes matter in the same way for a discourse community like this or, or for a genre like this as they would for someone producing the same kind of writing or, or writing that's less institutionally legitimated. And so you can start to talk about social justice and how where writing and discourse is coming from has such a strong impact on its ultimate implications and on the extent to which like these rhetorical standards that we kind of take for granted because we've been studying it for a long time get applied. And so it's not enough to like be a good writer. You also need power. And those issues of power, I think, are really important to engage with. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I mean, you know, that's part of what's at, at stake in this fundamentally, too, and why I think we should be, in whatever ways we can, raising the alarm bells about a case like this, because a lot of that power that, you know, you can take as an individual without, you know, becoming a part of a powerful institution yourself is to collectively organize with other people, right? The freedom to associate and the freedom to, you know, organize with other people to achieve a political goal is fundamental to, you know, American society, to the roots of our legal system. And, you know, being able to imbue your rhetoric with power necessarily involves association. Like you can only do so much as a single individual with your voice. You know, your freedom of speech only goes so far if you are alone, if you are working together with others. This is the whole point is that you take power by giving your rhetoric teeth. And it's the kind of thing that I really do think is powerfully at stake in a debate like this. So I appreciate all of the notes about, yeah, pedagogy. How do we teach this to our students as a cautionary tale as well as an instructive one in you know what the power of what rhetoric can do at these high levels, just as well as you know, for those of us who are involved in activist struggles ourselves, where do we need to be putting our solidarity right now? And I think it lies firmly within the Stop Cop City movement, defend the Atlanta forest. They need our voices. They need our help uh, in other ways. We'll maybe drop some links in the bottom of the show notes for some different ways that you can support. Uh, we promise that these won't get you uh, indicted on RICO charges. Again, sorry, we'll stop making jokes about this because it's truly in it, like at the end of the day, it is not funny what is happening here. But, you know, support however you can, because this this fight is even if it's not at your doorstep right now, if you want to be, be involved, it it will be. If you are involved in political association of any kind outside of law enforcement, this has an, a direct impact on you. I think that's so true, right? Like it's like, yeah. you know, this case ha will have implications for every organizational sort of collective action movement that happens after, which is why even if you don't live in Atlanta, it really matters how these charges are seen by the courts. It matters what precedent is set by how this trial plays out. This is definitely going to have implications for people all over the country, whether or not you're in Atlanta right now. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank all of you listeners for hanging in with us. And I especially want to thank my co-hosts and co-producers for going through and providing a really incisive analysis of this document. I think this is it's important rhetorical work to do uh, in a moment like this one to, you know, to help people make sense of this document. You can go out. There's a lot more wild stuff in there that we didn't even get to that is worth reading. So check it out if you get the chance. But uh, more than anything, 
solidarity with Stop Cop City, with Defend the Atlanta Forest. Um, mm-hmm. Keep keep fighting that good fight, and we will be you know supporting you from afar in your legal struggles as they continue to unfold. From all of us here at Reverb, thank you so much for tuning in today. It's been a joy to share this episode with you, and we will talk to you again soon. Bye-bye, everybody. Our show today was produced by Alex Helberg, Calvin Pollock, and Sophie Wadzak, with editing work by Alex. Reverb's co-producers at large are Olivia Burnett and Ben Williams. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. If you've enjoyed our show and want to help amplify more of our public scholarship work, please consider leaving us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice and tell a friend about us. We sincerely appreciate the support of our listeners. Thanks so much for tuning in.